Hello there. My name is Tim Rice. Welcome to my podcast, podcast number four about psychology from a Christian perspective. And this podcast is about worldviews and the history of psychology. Whenever I think about teaching the history of psychology, I chuckle in fear. It's because there's so much of it. When, when I was in college at the University of Georgia in the 1980s, I took the history of psychology and my textbook, I still have it. It's by E.G. Boring. Professor Boring was professor of psychology at Clark University and Harvard University, and he was one of the first historians of psychology. I love his name. I like to imagine the generations of university students who made fun about his name. Hey, who'd you get for psychology? Oh, I got Dr. Boring. Anyway, his text, A History of Experimental Psychology, was first published in 1929, and it was 700 pages long, and the print was tiny. You'll learn that the beginning of experimental psychology is generally said to be 1879, so this book was published in 1929, so 1879 to 1929 is 50 years, 700 pages in 50 years. And that's just the 1929. There's been another 75 years or so of, of history to, to learn and to present. So you can see why I chuckle at the thought of doing justice in a short little podcast. But what, what Dr. Boring did that, that we can do is we can look at the ideas, the theories, the, the, the schools of thought, the perspectives from or with... We can look at psychology in terms of the zeitgeist, in terms of zeitgeist, the fullness of of the time, the fullness of the cultural and social and intellectual and religious and scientific and worldview circumstances of the day, of the time. So we can do that. We can jump back and forth through time and, and we can look at the history of psychology. We can approach it like a a psychological thriller movie. Have you seen one of those? Uh, a detective movie, maybe, that begins with the ending at the scene of the crime, and then it jumps back and forth through time to reveal what happened and and why. So we can jump in back and forth through time, and we can talk about, about psychology as an old issue, an old question. Have you ever wondered about who was the first person to ever wonder about the human mind? I imagine it was one of the first big thoughts that man ever had. And, and whatever that first big thought was, it's something psychologists are interested in today. What does it mean to be human? Why does my wife behave that way? We know that King David thought about such things. Job did, Moses did, Abraham and Isaac did. The psalmist asked, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The ancient Greeks and Persians studied human behavior. But the world changed. There was a shift in the world. 
it's it's been called a revolution the scientific revolution and the scientific revolution the application of the methods of of natural sciences changed psychology and it's not called the revolution because it was a little bump in the road the question for us is how does how did the scientific revolution impact the study of the human mind so the world changed in terms of the scientific revolution but it changed too in the sense that when modern psychology was founded in the mid 19th century in the mid 1800s it was a time when there were huge religious and cultural shifts going on psychology became modern at a time when there was a broad movement away from religious worldviews to more secular worldviews. So, where are we today? What What is the beginning, the present day of our, our movie? Let's look at that and then we'll, we'll jump back and, and, and see the beginning of the movie and then fill in what happened in the middle. And the idea that best describes the present day modern psychology when you go to college, the best term is the astonishing hypothesis, the best phrase. Um, the, the, the astonishing hypothesis is the state of modern psychology today, and the, the term was coined by Francis Crick. You may remember Francis Crick. He and, and Dr. James Watson won a Nobel Prize for their, their discoveries around the molecular structure of of DNA and he wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis and, and in his book he took naturalism to its logical conclusions. He took naturalism and applied it to human psychology and, and this quote from The Astonishing Hypothesis summarizes The Astonishing Hypothesis quite well. He wrote this quote, you and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You are nothing but a pack of neurons. There is no you separable or separate from your body. More specifically, there is no you separable from your brain. Close quote. Those are that's astonishing. Those are fighting words. You are nothing but a pack of neurons. The next time somebody makes you mad, you can tell them that, hey, you're nothing but a, a pack of neurons. That's, that's a naturalist describing naturalism taken to its logical conclusion about human psychology. You are your brain. You are what your brain does. So let's look at the beginning now. Darwin anticipated what was going to happen someday to psychology. In The Origin of Species, lots of people don't know that Darwin wrote about human psychology. Did you know that? He wrote a whole book about it. It's called The Descent of Man. He understood that if evolution was true, then it had to be true for humans too. And he wrote in The Origin of Species, in the last chapter, he wrote this, quote, In the distant future, I see open fields for far more important research. 
Psychology will be based on a new foundation, that of the necessary acquirement of each mental power and capacity by gradation. Light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. Now let that sink in. Psychology will be based on a new foundation, that of the necessary, means no other way, the necessary acquirement. It means we once didn't have it and, and then acquired it. How? By gradation. It means a little bit, of, a little bit at a time. Of what? Of all mental powers and capacities. Darwin and Crick say all in different language. Darwin says all mental powers and capacity and, and Crick says your joys and sorrows and ambitions and memories and so forth. But they both mean the same thing. Taken together, Darwin and Crick mean that all mental activity, even those things that we think of as our God-likeness, are nothing more than the activity of packs of neurons, of capacities that humans acquire bit by bit through variation and, and natural selection. Now think about this. Follow me. Why do I call this the beginning? And why do I talk about evolution being the beginning and what happened in the middle? Didn't the origin of species, didn't the theory of evolution transform everything, including psychology? And I'm saying that, it's, that, that it did. Beginning with Charles Darwin's origin of species, all sciences, including psychology, underwent a, a, a change, a transformation. And that's true. It's a pivot point for all sciences. But until recently, for psychology, it was less so. For psychology, that was, it was least of all. What am I talking about? In my Psych 101 textbook, from the University of Georgia. Go dogs! The University of Georgia in 1980. Evolution only gets two mentions. Now if you think about that, that's pretty amazing. It's not astonishing, but it's amazing. 1980 was a long time after 1859. 1980 was a long time ago, but that's another story. It's, it was well, uh, well over a hundred years after Darwin wrote what I read you. A hundred years and his theory hadn't penetrated psychology very deeply at all. Only two mentions. Why is that? If evolution transformed everything, why only two mentions? I don't have my biology text from 30 years ago, but if I did, it would be thoroughgoingly evolutionary. Why is that? I think it's because Darwin's dangerous idea, Crick's astonishing hypotheses, are unbelievable. Every mental power and capacity, consciousness, morality, decision-making, judgments, attitudes, planning, religious experience. Even though they don't believe religious experiences are real, Darwin and Crick have to explain it since it's a human universal experience. 
if we as believers are just stupid and deluded, they still have to explain the evolutionary advantage of our stupid delusion and locate it in the physical brain. I call Darwin's words the beginning because it seems to me looking back that the full implications of, of evolution on us, on humanity, were so astonishing and so shocking and frankly so difficult to believe that psychologists haven't seemed to want to go there. What I said earlier about the science of psychology, that, that much of psychology is, is not about worldviews. It's about science. And the founding of modern psychology isn't defined as 1859, the year of the origin of species. It, it, the founding of modern psychology is set at 1879. And the founding of the first laboratory of psychological, of psychological science. So the difference between modern psychology and, and others is the application of science. And, and as such, psychology, as a science, psychology shares a common history with all sciences. It was born when the techniques of science were applied to questions of the human mind. And the first issue for the founders of modern psychology was how it could be scientific. How could it not be a philosophical endeavor? If it was going to be a science, what kind of science was it going to be? So the founders of, of psychology wanted to study things that could be measured and controlled and quantified. What, what can be measured and quantified and manipulated in scientific ways? And, and when, you, when you ask that question, you realize why psychology has been called a soft science, a social science, not like chemistry, not like physics. In, it, in psychology, it's very hard to define and measure psychological phenomena. So they studied what they could. Well, what could they study? Well, if you think about science and, and the scientific method, you, you might be able to predict what psychology's first major school of thought would be. Think about what, what things can we measure all day long about people? What can we observe? What can we quantify? What can we manipulate? Behavior. The scientific study of behavior, behaviorism, was the first major theory, first major school of thought of modern psychology. Now, behaviorism has two meanings. One has to do with the science of the factors influencing human behavior. But another way to look at behaviorism is as a worldview position, a position about the nature of man. Behaviorism as an approach to understanding behavior, an approach to understanding learning is one thing, but I want to talk about the worldview. It's important to hear the philosophy underlying behaviorism that, that sees mankind as ultimately, ultimately, very complicated stimulus response organisms. As a worldview, behaviorism makes bold claims about our sense of personal volition and free will. At, at its core, this philosophy, behaviorism, is deterministic. All of our behavior, and behavior is all there is, 
It's all traceable ultimately to rewards and punishments. As, as, as a science, behaviorism has made great discoveries. We can appreciate and benefit from those discoveries, but we need not sign on with, with the worldview. Now, not everybody was on board with behaviorism. And, and while behaviorism, behavioral psychology thrived and produced great discoveries, an entirely different school of thought developed. Have you heard of Sigmund Freud? Sigmund Freud? Freud's psychodynamic perspective was in many ways the exact opposite of behaviorism. For the behaviorists, we're all about behavior, and the concept of the mind is really meaningless. Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, on the other hand, thought, yeah, there's a mind, and, and that's where the action is. That's the, where the interesting parts of human psychology live. Freud explained the mind in terms of psychic forces, conscious and unconscious parts of the mind, and some parts of the mind are, are more well-behaved than others. We're, the mind is driven, propelled by this energy, libido, this drive for sensual pleasure and, and fear of death. Um, in this worldview, sensual pleasure and the pursuit thereof fuels and gives meaning to our experiences, to our dreams. It defines our personality, this inborn force that's all about sensual pleasures and, and, and selfishness. Now, neither of psychology's first two major theories, major schools of thought, behaviorism, and Freudian psychodynamic psychology, neither one was very flattering about human nature. We're robotic, animal-like slaves to the environment. Or we're driven to kill people and steal their mates, buffeted by these unconscious psychic forces. So humanism, the next wave, the third wave in psych Sykes' history, was a bit of a reaction to both Freud and behaviorism. We're not robots, not tossed about by unconscious sexual urges. We're unique individuals. We're, we're best understood as a whole person. Humanistic psychology emphasizes the worth of all people, and it, it suggests, it stresses a, a, a common goodness. Humanistic psychology emphasizes acceptance. It's non-judgmental. Underlying humanistic psychology is, is a worldview belief that says that humans are inherently good and left to our own measures we can be all that we can be. The, the Native Americans were once characterized as noble savages living free from societal and religious and parental constraints. It's a very humanistic idea. But humanistic psychology makes truth claims about our nature. Are we really born good or, or are we born little sinners by nature? How do we fix things when, when things go wrong? Is unconditional positive regard or, or, or discipline and, and some other um, approach effective? Now, 
There's problems dividing psychology into distinct time periods. It's not like behaviorism stopped one day. There are still Freudian psychologists. And, and the next major perspective, cognitive psychology. Cognitive psychologists have been interested in, in how we construct meaning, how we understand the world for a long time. But in the 1970s and 1980s, when, when computers were new, the, the computers provided a good metaphor um, for thinking about the mind. How do we acquire? How do we process? How do we understand information? How are we like computers? Information processing systems. And cognitive psychology, the cognitive perspective, is still very, very much useful today. Um, but the, the transition from cognitive psychology to the evolutionary psychology of today is, is small. Today it's said that, that evolution is the new psychology, which brings us back to today. Today the mind is is often described like a collection of of applications mental apps if you will packs of neurons neural networks that evolved to solve the problems of living that that our ancestors faced 80,000 200,000 or so years ago and some are multi-purpose packs of neurons, learning and adapting apps, and some are, are packs of neurons, apps with specific functions. And, and from this perspective, we, we're, we're, we're sometimes described as having a stone age, stone-aged mind in the modern world. Because evolution, evolutionarily, our apps evolved when life on earth was very different, the problems we faced a hundred thousand years ago very different than the problems we face today and there hasn't been much time in evolutionary time in which we could adapt to our current surroundings. And I think it's pretty significant to think that that today's modern perspective, the dominant perspective today, the scientific consensus around the theory of evolution hinges on psychology, on, on a belief that the human ability to wonder, why am I here? Where did I come from? That, that ability itself must have evolved just like physical structures. And if someone tells you they're an evolutionist, then they don't believe that. They don't believe what Crick says applies to them. They haven't really thought very deeply about, about evolution. Thank you for listening to this podcast number four, The History of Psychology from a Worldview Perspective. Visit my sponsor, tinastiedye.com. And like me on Facebook, it's Homeschool Psych and Psychology, a Christian Perspective. Follow me on Twitter, Tim at Homeschool Psych. Email me if you care to, Tim at homeschoolpsych.com. Thank you.